Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese, and I am co-host of the channel, along with Carrie Figder. Today, I will be talking with Professor Robert Audi about his new book, Democratic Authority and the Separation of Church and State, which was published this year with Oxford University Press. Robert Audi is John A. O'Brien Professor of Philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. According to a familiar account of the political world, citizens in a democratic society share political power as equals. This equality entails that the exercise of political power is legitimate, only when it can be justified by reasons that all citizens could endorse. Reasons deriving from religious doctrines are paradigmatic examples of reasons which are not endorsed by all citizens. Consequently, it is claimed that when the state acts on the basis of religious reasons, it acts wrongly. If it is wrong for the state to act on the basis of religious reasons, then it seems wrong for citizens to vote on the basis of their religious convictions. After all, voting is an act that instructs the state about what to do. And it's wrong to instruct the state to do something that it would be wrong for the state to do. Democracy, then, seems to require religious citizens to bracket or renounce their religious convictions in public political contexts. This requirement strikes many religious believers as deeply objectionable. In fact, it appears to violate the freedom of conscience and religious exercise that is guaranteed in the Constitution. So what, then, is the proper role of religious conviction and religiously inspired social action in a democratic society? In his new book, Robert Audi proposes an analysis of democratic authority and a conception of civic virtue that he hopes religious believers can embrace. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Robert Audi. Good morning, Bob. Thank you so much for joining us today on New Books and Philosophy. How are you doing this morning? I'm fine, and I'm delighted to talk with you about these topics. Excellent. Um, well, uh, welcome everyone who is listening. Uh, today on New Books in Philosophy, my guest is Professor Robert Audi. He's the author of the new book, Democratic Authority and the Separation of Church and State, which was published uh, just this year, uh, in fact, uh, I think only a month or so ago, by Oxford University Press. Um, now, this is a very timely book. Um, it's focused on issues concerning the role of religious conviction in the public life of democratic citizens. Most generally stated, it seems to me that the core issue that Professor Audi addresses in the book is this. Um, given the individual liberty secured and prized by democratic societies, citizens will come to hold different and perhaps conflicting religious and moral convictions yet they must share the duties and burdens and benefits of self-government. That is, they must decide together uh, how power will be exercised, 
the question then is, can religious uh, conviction serve as a guide in this process? And if so, how and what are its limits, given the fact that there's religious disagreement? Um, this seems to me, uh, again, a, 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 a real core uh, issue for uh, democratic societies. And um, it's an issue that uh, I think in our public lives uh, outside of the academy, we're, we're coming to confront uh, more and more. But before we get into the uh, specifics of Robert Audi's uh, discussion and analysis of these issues, uh, Robert, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to philosophy and how you came to this project? Well, I grew up in New York City and heard even at the dinner table, but also around town, about religious issues, ethical issues, citizenship issues. I went to a Quaker school, Brooklyn Friends, which was very civic-minded and at the time took religion very seriously as part of the ordinary commitment of the lives of students. Hmm. So I went to college, majored in philosophy, as well as literature, as a matter of fact, hmm. went on to do a PhD. Uh, the undergrad degree was Colgate, the graduate one, University of Michigan, and I've been working in ethics ever since. Now, right. maybe I should add something about how I got <coughs> into this topic in particular. Yes. In the 80s, Nebraska had an NEH grant, National Endowment for the Humanities grant, to the Committee on the Humanities, which I think each state had at the time, and maybe each state still has. There was a Nebraska Forum on Human Values. And the idea was to bring humanities scholars to public audiences to talk about matters of general human concern. Well, I did something on separation of church and state, which was then an issue, and of course still is. And really, my work in this topic started with a popular talk. I think that point's important for all of us philosophers, because we work on topics that are of general public interest, but we too often talk in ways that are intelligible mainly to each other. Right. So over the years, I've been writing, I think, more and more accessibly on this topic. And I tried in this book to be brief and very clear and concrete enough so ordinary readers can follow and undergrads can follow, certainly with the help of an instructor. But specialists in the area can find something of value for them and indeed something I haven't already said. So, well, it seems to me that you've succeeded at that, I should say. Well, thanks for that. <laughs> no problem. Did you mean to continue? Well, I think I've given you enough no. background, probably. You can see how I got into the topic. I work in ethical theory a great deal anyway, in general ethics, applied ethics, and I've been interested in rationality and presented a more or less full-scale theory of rationality in a book called The Architecture of Reason, uh, right. Oxford 2001. <clears throat> so all of that's background for this book. Right. And so now to begin to get into the um, uh, the, the, the meat of the book, um, could you talk to us a little bit about 
the general contours of the religion and politics debate? Because in light of what you just said, um, you've already indicated to our readers that this is an issue about which you've been concerned for some time. And I should say, uh, in case uh, anybody who's listening doesn't realize this, that some of your writings on religion and politics and the separation of church and state and the role of religious conviction in democratic decision-making and so forth, um, some of your earlier writings have become fairly standard reading uh, in this ongoing debate. Um, and um, the issue, uh, or I should say the issues, are rather complex and multifaceted. I'm wondering if we could ease our way into um, uh, discussing uh, your positive views in the book by, uh, if I can first ask you to give um, some more general orientation. Uh, you know, what's at stake in this, in this debate? What are the issues? This sort of thing. I mentioned to you that the popular talk I started with was on separation of church and state. But in thinking about that as a broadly institutional issue, I naturally, as a moral philosopher, got to thinking about citizenship ethics. So one question is how a democracy should be structured constitutionally and legally. But another question is how you and I should conduct ourselves as citizens. I've focused a great deal on the interaction between these two issues wanting to get a theory of citizenship that goes well with an appropriate theory of separation of church and state. And the general theory of separation of church and state has to fit a good political philosophy. So all of this is in play in this book as it has been before in my work. Excellent. Um, can you expand just a little bit, though, about... Um the uh, the general philosophical issues about the ethics of citizenship. So I take it that one of the things that has stimulated a lot of the contemporary debate is um, uh, some of the uh, elements of John Rawls's later work, particularly the conception of public reason that he uh, introduces and starts defending uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, and with the political liberalism book in which the, the claim seems to be that there are certain kinds of reasons or certain kinds of um, uh, maybe even certain kinds of statements that um, given their controversial nature or given their content um, are unfit to serve as justifications for public policy. Um, and this has struck um, uh, a certain strand of religious philosophers, thinking of Robert George, for example, um, Nicholas Wolterstorff, uh, as um, unfair or unacceptable or even an infringement on the free exercise of religion or in some other way a betrayal of liberal democracy's claim to treat everyone as a free and equal citizen. I'm wondering if you could just sketch a little bit of the terrain about the – uh, the, the the debates as uh, as 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 that you have come to them and as you have participated in them, just to uh, help our reader understand where the where the philosophical uh, 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 where the philosophically contentious parts are in all of this. Well, I ought to start by saying that one question for the ethics of citizenship is the extent to which one can be fully morally responsible by simply acting within one's rights. I take a rights-based ethic to be too narrow. We aren't good citizens or generally ethical human beings simply 
by acting within our rights and implicitly not violating anybody else's rights. A simple example concerns beneficence, which in one dimension calls for charitable contributions. Suppose I contribute nothing to charity. Have I violated anybody's rights? That's not at all obvious to me. And I think I may have a right not to give to charity if I haven't promised any gifts. But it would be clearly wrong for me to give nothing to charity. And it's clearly wrong not to assist people when you readily can and they need your help. Now, rights of free expression are extensive in a democracy. So I have always defended the right to vote on any conscientiously chosen basis. It, it isn't an absolute right, but it's very, very strong. But I think, and this is the title of a paper of mine, there are wrongs within rights. So it can be wrong to vote to restrict other people's behavior on a purely religious basis with no rationale drawn from the kinds of considerations we can share as rational citizens. So that's the general framework. What set of principles do we need to guide citizenship within one's rights of liberty, but also adhering to sound moral standards? Excellent. Um, so one of the, uh, I think, very um, helpful aspects of uh, the book, uh, Democratic Authority and the Separation of Church and State, uh, just to remind our readers of the title, um, is that you begin with this uh, set of metaethical, we might call them, uh, questions about the um, the status of ethical knowledge and the connections between um, uh, ethical beliefs and ethical convictions and religious convictions and whether these two uh, have some kind of dependency or if one is uh, parasitic upon the other. Um, and most of the discussions of, of, of these these topics, religion and politics and so forth, um, don't do the work, I think, or, or, or shy away from doing the work that you begin the book with. So um, why don't you tell us uh, about how you began the book and why you think it's important to begin the discussion of uh, church-state issues uh, with uh, this meta-ethical uh, right. uh, analysis? Right. I think one thing we have to do in this overall debate is criticize stereotypes now, it seems to me that some people have stereotyped religious citizens as not respecting what I call natural reason or the range of considerations we can share that lead us to good political and moral decisions. On the other hand, some religious people have thought that there's no rational basis for moral decisions other than one coming from religious inspiration of one sort or another, scripture, tradition, religious experience. It seems to me that ethics is autonomous in the sense that moral knowledge and moral justification are achievable on the basis of our natural, rational capacities independently of theology. Um, we could talk about the extent of the autonomy. We all depend on logic, of course, but that is not a constraint that is uh, particularly burdensome here. 
Now, it doesn't follow from the autonomy of ethics that religion can't have any moral authority. When I talk about the moral authority of religion, I'm talking, of course, in a shorthand. We have to look at a particular religion and the sources of authority it might have in ethics. But if you just consider the Bible as a rich text with narratives and ethical insights, it seems to me there's a great deal to draw on. Now, I think it has to be drawn on selectively, so different religious traditions will draw on it better than others. Different clerics will be more or less authoritative ethically. But there simply is a great deal of reflection and a great deal of insight in religious scripture and tradition that can give religious spokespersons for morality a kind of authority. I don't call it basic authority, but it can be important authority nonetheless. So I'm making room for a fruitful dialogue between religious and secular citizens, and indeed within the thinking of each, taking account of the views and insights of the other. And I take it, excellent, and I take it that this is the reason why um, in that first chapter of the book you develop um, what sounded to me a fairly compelling uh, conception of the divine command ethical view, uh, which um, you're in the uh, chapter quick to say that you don't hold it. But I take it that the the aim of, uh, of, of that section of the argument is to show that even on a certain conception of the connection between religious conviction and ethical knowledge, uh, even on a conception of these things which holds that um, a certain kind of religious belief is necessary for being an ethical person or necessary for having uh, correct ethical right. views, that you can still, from within that kind of very uh, uh, strict conception of these matters, there is still room for holding that um, uh, ethical, you know, people can be good even if they don't hold um, that there is anybody to issue divine commands, for example. Is this right? Yes, let me elaborate just a little bit. Sure. I've long been arguing that religious citizens should try to achieve a theoethical equilibrium, a kind of reflective equilibrium between one's best ethical thinking, religiously inspired, and one's best ethical thinking drawn from secular sources having to do with just general beneficence with the obligation of veracity, the obligation of fidelity to one's word, non-injury, equal distribution as a principle of justice. These things appeal to the religious and the non-religious alike. Right. But, but uh, clearly there are religious directives that go further and are quite different. And ideally one tries to achieve an equilibrium, retaining as much as one can from all the plausible elements on all the relevant sides. Okay. Now, many people have held a divine command theory that goes like this. What's obligatory is obligatory in virtue of being commanded by God. Now, if you hold that view, you're taking commandedness to be the basis of moral obligation. And commandedness is a historical property. So you have to understand all ethical obligation as deriving from historically given commands. That raises serious questions about how you get from a limited number of divine commands in almost any theology to the vast array of obligations we take ourselves to have day in and day out. 
Right. I don't say that problem's automatically um, insoluble, but it's a very difficult problem. There's also the famous euthyphro problem, which many of our listeners may have heard of, but in brief, it's drawn from Plato and goes as follows. If obligatoriness is grounded in divine command, then anything divinely commanded is obligatory, no matter what it is, no matter how horrifying it is. So um, the question Euthyphro raises is whether what's obligatory is obligatory because commanded or whether it's commanded because obligatory. Right. And generally speaking, those who favor the autonomy of ethics have said it can't be obligatory because commanded. Well, how could we get a divine command theory moderate enough to get around this problem? Suppose we take obligatoriness to be meriting divine command. And suppose we take uh, God to be um, all-knowing, all-powerful, and perfectly good. Then what merits divine command would seem to be the sort of thing we take to be obligatory intuitively and on the basis of a sound ethical theory. Um, On the other hand, how do we get the idea of um, being commanded as lending authority? Well, why would God command my keeping my promises to you? Perhaps because you are a being with human dignity and it befits my relation to you to keep my promises to you. Right. So uh, my short solution goes as follows. What's obligatory isn't obligatory because God commands it. And it's also false that God commands it because it's obligatory. God commands what is obligatory because of why it's obligatory. That is the basis on which it's obligatory. Now, the obligatoriness of what we ought to do is a matter of the kind of thing it is in relation to the kind of being we are. I think, this is now part of my ethical theory, that we're in the domain of necessary truths. So it seems to me basic moral principles are necessary. And -hmm. if they're necessary, they're not alterable even by omnipotence, and they don't stand in need of being instated by command. So uh, putting it now in terms of a simple example, it's no limitation on omnipotence that an omnipotent being can't create a round square. Why should it be any limitation on omnipotence that an omnipotent being can't make it right wantonly to kill? Right. So I think I have a solution of a kind to the euthyphro problem, but I think that piety can be satisfied by the very moderate divine command theory I've developed. I don't endorse the theory, but I think it's plausible. Right, and I, I, I take it that the um, one of the, the attractive features uh, of this in version of the divine command view is that it would allow um, for uh, moral knowledge uh, even among those who um, don't accept uh, that there's a divine commander. That is that um, you can uh, – there's a sort of have your cake and eat it too element of, of this view where yes. uh, you, can, you can see – uh, morality as in some very tight sense tied to um, the divine command or divine will or what God knows is good for us, um, but yet still leave room open for uh, the possibility of um, 
morally good persons who um, don't accept the existence of such a, a, a god. Right. right. It Excellent. For more than one route to moral justification and moral knowledge. And so um, a secular person could acknowledge that there is a religious root. A religious person could acknowledge that there is a secular root. And what's especially interesting about the framework is that since motivation works in a very special way, one could hold the divine command theory proposed and be motivated uh, by religious considerations far more than by secular considerations, and in some cases not by the latter at all. Right. Um, and this, I take it, um, is, a, is a nice way of, as you say, sort of uh, undermining stereotypes um, because um, – even in the academic literature on religion and politics, not to speak now uh, of, of, of the, the more popular uh, um, discussions that go on uh, on talk radio and television in our popular fora, um, uh, even the academic discussions of these things, uh, there is um, the worry that um, religious citizens, uh, sometimes just called fundamentalists, um, get caricatured in a certain way um, in which uh, they're portrayed as um, uh, people who are in virtue of their religious convictions somehow not capable of tolerating secularity or not capable of seeing um, people who don't share their religious beliefs as uh, moral agents or certainly not as um, fellow citizens. And so I, I take it that one of the important parts of uh, or elements of this kind of divine command view is that it um, – uh, helps both the secular and the religious see how uh, somebody who holds a rather tight connection between uh, religious conviction and an ethical uh, commitment can nonetheless think their way into a position True. which would allow them to see others who don't share their religious convictions, for example, or have any religious convictions at all as um, at least capable of good citizenship and proper moral agency and all the rest. Right, but um... – Making room for a tight connection between the theological and the ethical is very accommodationist in a general way, but I want to say I've not defended fundamentalism. Right. Uh, and what I've done is to create a framework which I hope somebody fundamentalistic could relate to, uh, and I hope such persons could find a way to be adequately and deeply enough religious without being fundamentalistic. Right, right. Um, well, this maybe is a good moment to sort of move on to um, the, the next uh, sections of the book. Um, so one of the – after this um, discussion of the meta-ethical issues and the autonomy of uh, ethics, um, you move on to um, – uh, a general view about the separation of church and state. And I want to, just to, as a way to frame the rest of the discussion, sort of for the moment at least, I know these two issues are not ultimately separable, but for the moment sort of separate off um, questions about uh, church and state separation from questions about the conduct of religiously convicted citizens within uh, a democratic context. It seems to me that these are uh, usefully uh, discussed as separate, even though ultimately they're um, very closely tied. Um, so um, you introduce uh, as, as part of or the first sort of segment of your positive proposal um, 
a view about uh, church and state. And um, you're interested, importantly, it should be mentioned, uh, in working out these issues for a liberal democracy. And you say that a liberal democracy is one that's committed to uh, a, a kind of maximal individual liberty while also respecting and recognizing uh, individual equality. Um, and you think that this entails, or maybe you don't say entails, but this comes along with um, a neutrality principle. That is a view which says that the state has to um, be neutral uh, among uh, permissible conceptions of the good, including religious and secular conceptions. Um, can you tell us a little bit or help describe or lay out uh, the general view about the separation of church and state? Uh, you know, I know that you get into okay. some particular issues, but uh, right. can you give us the general contours well, of the view? When you spoke of neutrality among permissible conceptions of the good, I suppose I'm on board with you, but I want to make sure you aren't assimilating my view to Rawls's view right. that a democratic state has to be neutral with respect to comprehensive views of the good. Now, he may have been using comprehensive as a technical term, but it's very hard, and this is a lesson of philosophical inquiry, I think, it's very hard to take an ordinary term with a settled meaning and treat it as a, a technical term and not have the ordinary meaning intrude. Right. So my view is that there really are ethical principles that widely guide our behavior and critical thinking, even if when we look at them in the abstract, we don't always endorse them. So to refer to another aspect of my work, I've argued that people can disagree on reasons and on principles even when they don't disagree in reasons and in being guided by the very principles in question. Think of how people could disagree on a grammatical rule um, even though those who reject it as formulated are guided by it in their ordinary parlance. Right, so right. I think there really is a comprehensive ethical view that the state can defend, and I've stated the view in my book, The Good and the Right, A Theory right. of Intuition and Intrinsic Value, uh, that really contains a great deal of, um, oh, I'd say, moral standards that, that guide behavior and ought to guide behavior. So roughly, government doesn't have to be ethically neutral. It doesn't have to be value neutral. Now, maybe Rawls doesn't have to deny that. But some right. of what he said makes it look as though he denies that. But I do think the state should be neutral toward religion, which isn't to say it can't have any policies that in effect favor religious people. Consider having state holidays on Christian feast days. Right. If the rationale is preference for Christianity, that's not an adequate rationale for a democratic government. If the rationale is accommodating the strongly felt needs of a majority of citizens, it's another matter, but you have differential effect even without um, preference in policy determination of a kind that's uh, invidious or otherwise unacceptable. Right. So the neutrality that you're concerned with is, and, um, you know, your, your view is in certain respects, uh, as I read it at least, um, not very far off from some of the 
commitments of the the Rawlsian view. But the the mm. kind of neutrality you're interested in is it is what we sometimes call justificatory neutrality, right? You're interested in um, neutrality at the level of the grounds that are offered for enacting some coercive law, rather than um, a neutrality that would um, uh, attach to uh, the effects of uh, introducing right. some policy because neutrality of the latter times of the latter kind rather um, seems impossible to achieve. I think you would agree. Um, so the idea then is um, the liberal state, the liberal democratic state, has to be neutral in the sense that the reasons that it offers for coercive policy cannot favor or disfavor um, uh, religion or religious citizens or non-religious citizens, that there's some kind of set of considerations that um, sort of don't cut across the religious and non-religious divide, if that's the right way to put it. In this book, I've uh, put the point in a way I hadn't before in terms of the protection of individuals' sense of identity. Now, people's religious convictions are usually very deep in their sense of identity. But it's possible in principle for someone to have ethical and aesthetic convictions that are very deep in the sense of identity. Sure. And if a democracy is of, by, and for the people, and that for is normative and has to do with the flourishing of the people, then a democracy shouldn't favor protection of identity based on religious considerations more than protection of identity or the sense of identity based on other kinds of deeply held standards. As a contingent matter, religious identifications tend to go very, very deep, but that is, I think, a contingent matter. So this is where government of, by, and for the people has to be religiously neutral, even if the effect of protecting everybody in terms of the sense of identity is differentially positive for the religious. Right. So sometimes it helps um, in working through some of these philosophical issues to take up a particular case. So uh, in the discussion of church and state separation in your book, um, you do have a nice section about uh, the science curriculum in public schools. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about how you think that um, this commitment to a kind of maximal liberty while respecting individual equality along with government neutrality uh, helps us to – uh, resolve or help puts right. us down on one side of the issue of the public school science curriculum. We've had much discussion and court cases on the problem of teaching evolutionary biology in public schools. Now, one of the things to be said here is that the appropriate neutrality for a democratic government isn't absolute. And so if religious people who are fundamentalistic make empirical claims that are readily scientifically testable, the protection of the beliefs that go with those claims in public education uh, is not the responsibility of the state. And the neutrality principle I propose doesn't require um, protecting those convictions and keeping them free from criticism. However, Religious conviction 
overall, when theistic, let us say, involves metaphysical views about reality that are not testable uh, by scientific means in any ordinary way. And very, very broadly speaking, it looks to me as though scientific inquiry can be metaphysically neutral on those points. One could be a methodological naturalist as opposed to a philosophical naturalist and leave out why it is that evolutionary biology is correct. One could leave open whether God chooses to bring people into the world via evolution or via the story of Genesis understood literally. So evolutionary biology can be taught in a way that is properly neutral toward religion and is not anti-religious. It will be anti-fundamentalistic, but I don't think a democratic uh, constitution can protect religious fundamentalism any more than it can protect what is uh, occasionally a result of religious commitment, namely um, mutilation of human beings. Right. Um, let me ask a question uh, related to this. Uh, so I take it that um, that you th that you think, and I, I agree with you, of course, that um, we uh, we can um, have a requirement uh, in our biology curriculum in public schools for uh, teaching evolutionary theory um, without violating the neutrality principle. I take it that you think that a um, a requirement that would uh, uh, impose some sort of e even if only equal time uh, 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 requirement uh, in the curriculum for creationism, I take it that you think that that would not be justifiable under the neutrality condition. Is that right? Well, um, let's distinguish between public and private schools. I think okay. we're talking about public schools because presumably right. government is in some sense speaking in the required curriculum of the public schools, at least where what is taught is taught as true. So we have to distinguish between bringing creationism or intelligent design into the biology classroom as a subject of discussion and teaching uh, one of these as true. Let's take creationism. Teaching it as true is in effect teaching um, a theistic point of view. We then violate the neutrality principle, and we might even violate the equality principle in that we might favor a religious version of creation that's uh, peculiar to one religion and thus uh, uh, false to some other. So now we're into the question, what should come into the scientific curriculum given that we're being metaphysically neutral in the appropriate way? And that, I think, has to be left to the judgment of science teachers, who it seems to me ought to have some philosophical training because creationism or intelligent design may well come up. And there may be critical segments of, say, intelligent design theory that are worth responding to without being um, theologically committed or theologically um, hostile. Right. Um, so... This uh, this calls to mind, at least in my mind, um, a closely related set of issues that um, uh, don't get addressed uh, in the book. But I think that some of uh, what you say on, on, on the neutrality uh, uh, bears on this issue. Um, now, it seems to me that the, the, the philosophical 
questions about justifying coercive policies or justifying policies, even if they're only mildly coercive, that those questions are different from questions about exemptions on the basis of religious or moral convictions. Right. Now, in one of the, 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 the cases that's uh, uh, very um, frequently discussed, uh, even in the religion and politics literature, is the, the Mozart case, which is a case from Tennessee, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with, where um, parents who were uh, of some ver- various versions of fundamentalism were looking to get an exemption uh, from, um, from a policy in that they were looking for permission to um, uh, remove their kids for uh, part of the school day because they objected to the reading curriculum in the uh, public school system of Hawkins County. The reading curriculum, in the, as, as our, our listeners might not know, but I'm sure you know, the reading curriculum that was adopted that these uh, parents, religious parents, found objectionable, um, cited as one of the, um, the desideratum a desiderata, rather, of the the reading curriculum, the the teaching children critical thinking, and um, some of the the fundamentalist parents responded by saying that well, critical thinking is a really valuable thing, and w- when you don't have the truth, but once you've got the truth, critical thinking isn't such an, an important thing. And since uh, our children um, uh, read the Bible and know all about Jesus, they have the truth, so they don't need to be critical thinkers. So what they were looking for is an exemption from a policy, that is they were looking for the permission to withdraw their child from that part of the school day. They said that they would go teach their children at home how to read. They would subject their kids to all of the standard uh, state-sanctioned reading uh, examinations, but they didn't want their child exposed Mm -hmm. or they didn't want their children exposed to uh, this curriculum. Now it seems – so they wanted an exemption on the basis of religious reasons. Now, it looks to me like there's an interesting connection. Uh, Sometimes these things are run together. I think that they're distinct, but it's interesting connection between the question of what justifies coercive policy and whether religious reasons play a role in in that justificatory process and the question of whether religious reasons can be sufficient to justify an exemption. Now, it seems to me that your view might have something, uh, uh, might uh, entail something on this. Uh, So I wonder if if you can just now... uh, uh, I mean, I'm sure you have a view on this. What uh, what would you say about, about well, this kind of case? I have stressed the liberty principle as calling for, very roughly speaking, uh, as much freedom as we can all exercise without undermining the liberty of others. And I certainly think religious liberty is very, very important. That has to do with how close religious commitment is to the sense of identity of a person. So we have here what you might call a free exercise issue, but religious liberty is not unlimited. I've already said that human mutilation and certainly human sacrifice are impermissible and a democratic society doesn't have to protect those things. So now the question is whether we may coerce young people educationally. I think the answer is yes. Uh, We have to educate for roughly the common good. And then the question is whether we must do so neutrally. I've already said neutrality is not absolute. So I would say that um, critical thinking is important to general education and democratic citizenship. It can be taught in a biased way. So I would entertain parental complaints about the way critical thinking is taught. Now, 
there was a time when what was called values clarification was popular. Right. And many noted that under that banner, a kind of moral relativism was taught. Well, this is a place where I would emphasize that you could have a comprehensive ethical view and neutrally teach it in moral education, where Rawls' uh, proscription of government uh, endorsement of comprehensive views might prevent you. Now, as I said, he uses that as a technical term, so it's not clear where he would stand on this. I'm sure he would approve of a certain amount of moral education. Right. Uh, I would join him in saying if your moral education goes so far as to prefer utilitarianism over any other ethical theory, uh, you've gone too far. Correct. Right. Uh, but, but of course, uh, all the details are very, very difficult. So in general, I'm suggesting that uh, although a case for withdrawal under the uh, standard of protecting religious liberty can be very strong, it isn't absolute. But just to get a little more clarification, what if parents don't want their children to recite the Pledge of Allegiance because it has under God in it? Well, it seems to me secular parents uh, have a right to withdraw their children from that. And um, religious um, parents might think, some of them anyway, that that's too generic an endorsement and not like having their children recite that. Or there might be something with a little bit more religious content, and then one religious group might approve of it and another not. So there are cases where religious liberty would be grounds for withdrawing a student, but I don't think that critical thinking properly taught provides grounds for withdrawal. Excellent. Um, so let's now move to um, this, this sort of second part of uh, second dimension of this issue, which is the um, civic uh, virtue of, uh, of citizens, particularly citizens with religious conviction. Um, so uh, you are um, you offer an analysis uh, in the book, um, which um, makes use of uh, several principles, which are very neatly laid out. Um, and so the question here is, you know, what role, um, what role can or what role uh, should uh, religious convictions play in citizens' um, uh, action qua citizens uh, in the public realm? That is, um, uh, may citizens appeal to their religious reasons in deciding uh, how they'll vote or for which candidate they'll vote? Um, are these things that are supposed to be bracketed off, as is sometimes said in the literature? Um, so you've got a view which makes use of uh, a couple of core principles. There, there are more principles in the book. Um, uh, a principle of secular rationale, a principle of religious rationale. Um, you've got two principles um, specifically aimed at the uh, political uh, activities of clergy and uh, uh, ecclesiastical institutions. But then um, – uh, a little bit later in the book, you also announce what seems to me to be a very important uh, part of this picture, uh, principle of secular motivation. So could you tell us a bit about uh, this general view sure. of uh, civic virtue even among religiously convicted citizens? Right. Uh, in the 80s, 
in a paper in Philosophy and Public Affairs, appearing before Rawls' political liberalism, I presented both the principle of secular rationale and the principle of secular motivation and defended both. Both received a great deal of discussion, and I have since defended the principles, but also offered elaboration and refinement. Now, one thing I've done is to bring out what was in the original paper, that the principle of secular rationale calls for having, endorses a prima facie obligation to have, adequate secular reason for advocacy or support of laws or public policies that restrict human behavior. Now, that's most of them. I never said that free expression should be limited and specifically indicated that this does not limit free expression. You can express yourself religiously and still constrain the grounds on which you restrict other people's behavior. Right. Um, so that's extremely important. I've now more recently use the term natural reason as a substitute for secular reason. The terms are not absolutely equivalent, but I had in mind reasons that are theologically neutral and are of the sort that are shareable among rational persons. So they're the kinds of reasons that figure in basic moral principles, but also, of course, in standard inductive and deductive logic. Now, I didn't say that um, there's no right to vote on a religious reason, but there can be wrongs within rights. So right. the principle of secular rationale is a principle expressing prima facie obligations of citizenship, but they're not absolute obligations. They are, however, important for civic virtue. Now, that brings me to the second principle, which has to do with motivation. Let's take a case like, um, oh, uh, assisted suicide. Maybe um, I'm motivated to oppose it because I think uh, only God gives life and only God should take it. Uh, but I say that it will be used to exploit the poor. Well, um, if that's true, then I might have an adequate secular reason. But what if I'm not motivated by that reason? Well, then... Um, Voting to outlaw assisted suicide would be possible under the principle of secular rationale, but it would be um, resistible under uh, the principle of secular motivation and maybe ought to be resisted. Now, I've always said that the rationale principle is more important because if I do the right thing for the wrong reason, I've still done the right thing and presumably nobody's rights are violated. Uh, but I myself don't act virtuously. Now, this is a very old idea. It's implicit in Aristotle. You find it in Hume. You find it in Kant, where it appears as the idea that you don't get moral credit for doing something if you don't do it for a moral reason. Right. So um, you could think of it this way. Uh, if I vote to restrict your behavior for a religious reason, my act of restricting your liberty is in a sense a religious act. It traces to a religious root. Now it happens to be an act that can be justified in another way. Now to fill the picture out a little bit more, and it's a very complicated picture, right. rational persons who think 
that there is a reason that's clear enough for doing something that they do tend to be motivated by that reason. So it's really a rare case that a rational person would present a reason and take the reason to be good without being motivated. So the principle really functions to get people to consider their reasons, which is very salutary, Right. To think about whether they're really motivated. Typically, if we're not motivated by a reason, it's because it doesn't really convince us. I mean, um, um, it doesn't really seem um, rationally cogent. Right. So, so the principle distinguishes between doing the right thing for uh, the right range of reasons and doing the right thing uh, for the wrong reason. And a kind, now this is important that you would not want to be the basis of your coercion if the shoe were on the other foot. Right. right. So we do not like being restricted in our behavior uh, by principles that are enacted by other people motivated by religious considerations, even if they can offer us a good argument. Of course, if the argument's good, we're pacified. Right. But it's right. not good relations to do things uh, for reasons that are not the ones that you take to be justificatory, or at least they're not um, the ones you offer as justificatory. So, good, excellent. So this is very helpful. So um, one uh, one way to, I, I, I think, encapsulate the view is, uh, your view, is to say that um, unlike some other uh, proposals, even some uh, of the Rawlsian proposals, and maybe even Rawls's view, uh, Rawls's own view, um, your view allows liberal democratic citizens uh, to publicly advocate, including uh, to, to vote, um, on the basis of their religious reasons, uh, provided that, and this is an important writer to your view, provided that there is also a non-religious reason or a secular reason uh, that they could identify which would be sufficient to motivate that advocacy in the absence of the religious reason. Is this, is this the right way to, that, to encapsulate the, the view? That's the virtue condition. The justification right. condition is having adequate um, secular reason, natural reason. So uh, notice, I don't claim and I don't think a liberal constitution should presuppose that religious reasons can't be evidentially cogent. But, right. but a democratic constitution shouldn't endorse their cogency, um, that of particular reasons, or even the idea that they can be cogent. It should make room for their cogency and the idea that they can be cogent. My view does that. But right. it says that the right basis of coercion must include natural reasons of an adequate kind that are evidentially sufficient. Um, so uh, this is... Um, one element of the view that that uh, was a little puzzling to me because um, you also endorse um, a principle of religious rationale, right? Where you require, you say that the religiously convicted citizens have a prima facie obligation not to advocate for any view that they could not find a religious justification for. So. Not only do they also have to be able to, uh, to find the, uh, a, a secular rationale and make sure that that secular rationale would be sufficient to motivate ind independently of right. uh, or in the absence of the religious reason, you also require them to have a religious justification for their advocacy. Well, there's a prima facie, which is an overridable right. obligation to have it. Um, now, this is actually uh, 
consistent with all the principles I have published before, but it's strongly accommodationist and it recognizes the authority of religion, which should be, I think, taken seriously from within a religion. Virtually any religion has an ethic and it should be part of the ethic of a religious person to consider the ethical requirements of the religion. Now, I've never said a religious person couldn't be in conflict over whether to restrict behavior that's religiously prohibited um, when there's no adequate secular reason for doing so. Of course, there can be conflict. But the point is that with, for example, capital punishment or assisted suicide, one might find that one's religious view doesn't provide adequate reason for, say, capital punishment. There's the forgiveness ethic right. after all there's uh, love thy neighbor and love doesn't entail approval of course and it doesn't preclude punishment but capital punishment uh is killing and uh, you know we are taught not to kill uh killing in self-defense is one thing but capital punishment isn't um clearly justified uh, some would say clearly is unjustified by self-defense considerations given incarceration or other right. preventive measures so um, you could actually think you've got a religious rationale for capital punishment, look more closely and see that you don't. So it's very salutary for religious people to think about the ethic that goes with their religion. It helps them understand their religion, and it often provides a basis for better dialogue in the public sphere, where I think it's a matter of judgment whether religious considerations ought to come in. I've right. never restricted them from public discourse, but it may be very injudicious to bring them in in some contexts, and very but, needful to bring them in in others. But does does the, the does the principle of religious rationale entail that uh, a citizen of religious conviction does something prima facie wrong when they advocate for a principle or advocate for a, a policy, let's say, um, which has a, a moral content to it, uh, as most do? Um, but for which they just don't think their religious convictions speak at all to the issue. So imagine a citizen who has religious convictions who um, uh, has to act in his or her office as, as a citizen uh, by voting for a policy with respect to um, – I don't know. Let me just say something like um, uh, intellectual property or something about internet behavior. Mm -hmm. And they just don't find their religious – commitments okay. speaking to the issue at all. Well, that's not so the hardest case because that's a case where the religion doesn't speak to the issue and there presumably is no religious provision the person is committed to, which says general ethics can't guide you in political behavior where your religion doesn't. I oh, okay. So that could be that could be a, a commitment of the of that that could be a religious reason, right? A religious reason could be where the religion doesn't speak, go by general moral uh, commitments or something. Well, that's pretty meta-ethical. But let's yeah. suppose a religion could make it uh, very comfortable to have that view on one's uh, civic behavior as a legislator. I thought you were going to mention the case where your religion uh, proscribes something and you vote for it. Well, right. That would, that, that's, that's what we were going at. That's the harder case. And I don't say that one can never have a conflict between what, is mor what one is morally obligated to do, qua a rational citizen, and what one is morally obligated to do, qua a devotee of one's religion. Um, this is a very difficult question. Does ethics, as opposed to philosophical meta-ethics, say that ethical reasons always override other kinds? 
Now, some religions have scriptures that suggest that religious reasons are always overriding. Right. Well, maybe some religious people will come down one way in such a conflict and some will come down another. Much depends on one's religion and one's interpretation of it. Uh, you could even think religious reasons are always overriding, but that you're fallible about how they really weigh on an issue. So given your fallibility, you decide not to uh, go with the, re the apparent religious reason. Right. And it seems to me that um, one of the virtues of, the, of your view is precisely this, that um, uh, you recognize that uh, even a, a perfectly philosophically worked out uh, um, analysis of these issues um, is not going to or shouldn't be expected to uh, render deep uh, uh, religious conflict uh, impossible. That is that you're willing to say that in certain kinds of cases, given certain kinds of religious conviction, given certain kinds of public issues, um, certain religious citizens are going to have a, a real struggle right. with civic virtue. And that's I think true. that that's, that's an important element. Hard cases. And we cannot completely bypass practical wisdom. But it's very salutary for religious people to try to achieve theoethical equilibrium. And using my principles, which do, after all, recognize a right to do otherwise, they posit only prima facie obligations, using my principles in dialogue and debate, I think makes it possible more often than otherwise to get uh, correct decisions or good decisions. But, and this is important, the route to rectification and revision is more readily traversed if you arrive at your decisions the way I suggest than if you arrive at them the way uh, you would if you were more one-sided. Uh, right. Take the religious citizen as a case, of course, or the secular citizen who refuses to listen to any uh, considerations drawn from religious scripture uh, or religious thinking. Um, so uh, let me uh, ask, uh, uh, I know we're, we're, we're running short on time, but let me just push one more uh, line uh, on this. Um, so I'm wondering about a case, and I don't have a, uh, an actual case in mind, but I am wondering about uh, a case in which um, a law or a coercive policy um, satisfies uh, the secular rationale principle, satisfies um, uh, the religious rationale principle, but falls short of the secular motivation. That is, what would we say about a case in which there is a policy which enjoys a rather weak secular rationale, but enjoys a very strong religious rationale such that many people advocate for it? Um, on your view, they would be wrong for doing so if they advocate for it in the absence of the uh, satis it satisfying the secular motivation principle. But let's imagine a law in which everyone has a very strong, maybe not the same, but a very strong religious rationale, a very weak, so weak that it would not motivate uh, uh, a, se a secular rationale that's very weak and, and would not motivate. Is that – on your view, I take it that citizens who have advocated for that kind of policy have done something that is not admirable from the point of view of civic virtue. But I want to ask a question about whether such a law is legitimate, 
right? It seems to me that you're right to think that there are two kinds of issues uh, swirling around here. One is the ethics of citizenship, what is admirable uh, moral behavior by citizens in their office of citizen. But then there is this other issue about the legitimacy of the coercion. Okay. So I'm wondering if uh, in such a case the law is legitimate even though the citizens in advocating for it have acted in a way that's not admirable. You mean, I think, though you didn't make this explicit, that they're uh, motivated um, not sufficiently by the secular considerations right. that are minimally justificatory. They're motivated uh, almost entirely by the religious considerations. Correct. Why isn't this a case of doing the right thing uh, for the wrong sort of reason where there is the right sort of reason that one recognizes? Uh, why isn't legitimacy a matter of justifiability rather than a matter of the um, virtuousness with which uh, the law in question is enacted? So I think my answer has to be, should be, yours should be, I believe, that the law is legitimate if it's properly justifiable, but that passing the law is not admirable and may be criticizable if um, the adequate reasons don't motivate at all, and we should be suspicious of why we're not adequately motivated by reasons that we think are adequate. So it's an odd case. Uh, it's hard to imagine how this could happen, but in right. principle, I've made room for it. And it's right. much better to have a legitimate law that for some reason you couldn't get people to pass without enlisting their religious motivation than to have a law uh, that isn't justifiable at all, whatever the motivation for passing it. Right, but it, it, it's a it's an interesting case, at least uh, if, for me, as I'm trying to work through your view, because it does help us to see where the conception of legitimacy um, uh, that you're uh, committed to, um, you know, the boundary between yeah. the, the the legitimacy and the civic virtue concerns. So it looks yeah. to me now that the secular motivation principle isn't part or isn't uh, a central part of the the view of democratic. Uh, legitimacy that you have. It's a view of this. It's it's part of the civic virtue. That's right. Uh, it's part of the ethics of citizenship, uh, but it's not as important a part as the um, natural reason or secular motivation, uh, secular rationale principle. Now, I can say something useful uh, here, which is that I have distinguished between the case in which we are trying to liberalize. Uh, and the case in which we are coercing. Now, when you liberalize by lifting a restriction, you do have to coerce the police because they can no longer impose the uh, restriction, say a restriction of liberty. Maybe it's um, alcohol, go back to uh, prohibition. Okay? Right. So I call that secondary coercion. I don't think that where we want to lift restrictions, take slavery as the historically prominent case, um, we are constrained in the same way. The default standards in democracy are liberty and basic political equality. And we shouldn't give bad arguments, but suppose the only way to reverse um, the legality of slavery is to enlist religious motivation. Well, then I think the prima facie obligation not to act for religious reasons is overridden. So once again, it's extremely important to see that while prima facie obligations have a behavior guiding force, they are not uh, as such absolute. 
Well, that's very helpful. Um, uh, Robert Audi, you've, uh, uh, you've been very generous with your time. Um, and, uh, we've been, we've been talking now for just about a little bit over an hour actually. Um, so let me ask one final question. Um, can you tell us what's on the horizon? What's your next project? Well, I'm going to be continuing on this topic for years to come. I'm quite sure there may even be a symposium covering this book. But quite apart from that, I have a monograph in progress on moral perception and ethical objectivity that will support what I've done here. And I have uh, a monograph um, in draft form in epistemology and plans for one in general ethics, extending the overall ethical theory that backs up the framework we've been discussing. So I'm uh, planning on <laughs> a great deal of work for uh, quite a few years. And well, that's excellent. Discussing this for a long time to come. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of your work and uh, really appreciate uh, the breadth uh, of your philosophical uh, work. So I will definitely be looking forward to uh, reading uh, what comes next uh, from you. Um, but I wanted to thank you once again uh, for spending time with us today to talk about your book, Democratic Authority and the Separation of Church and State. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation. You have been listening to my interview with Professor Robert Audi of the University of Notre Dame. We have been talking about his new book, Democratic Authority and the Separation of Church and State, published by Oxford University Press. I am Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening. <laughs>